Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. This week, we're joined by Kareth Foster. Kareth wears many hats. She's a stand-up comedian. She's a motivational speaker across college campuses and businesses. She conducts diversity training. She's a radio personality, once for the controversial Don Imus. What is really unique about Kareth is her belief in the power of humor to find common ground and to show each other our humanity. In this episode, we hear about Kareth's journey and some of the work she's doing to bridge divides. Kareth, thank you so much for joining this episode of Sanity. Thank you for having me. To kick off our conversation, you talk a lot about the term inversity. It's something that you have coined as a word that doesn't have the same dividing kind of connotation that diversity uh, sometimes can, at least the, the root DIV. Can you please talk a little bit about where this word came from? Absolutely. You know, I, I'm a creative, I'm a comedian, I'm an artist, but I'm also a social entrepreneur who wants to bring people together. And the more I was looking at the diversity programming that was out there, the more I recognized the the common core was that it was about focusing on respecting other people's for their differences. And while I don't disagree with that, I mean, obviously we should, I believe in the law of attraction. What you put your attention toward is what you're going to get most. If all we're focusing on primarily is how different we are, how can we possibly come together? So the idea was to shift the focus from what divides us and what differentiates us to what we have in common, how we can be inclusive. But most importantly, it has to start with you. And that is a matter of being introspective. You know, understanding your value, your worth, your connection to humanity. Because if you can see that in yourself, you can see it in someone else. And because of how diversity programming has been done for so long, the word has been a bit tainted or hijacked, if you will. So I thought, you know what, if I'm going to do a new approach to this, we're going to need a new way to talk about it. And so that's where inversity came from. You speak at a lot of different schools. You've spoken at Stanford. You travel the country doing trainings with students on these topics. Can you talk about a time where you were speaking where maybe there was some tension or the shift in tone from when you walked in to when you walked out was dramatically different? Absolutely. The most intense situation I've ever had was probably when I went to Oberlin. And I think it was due to the organization that brought me in. It was more under the guise of a free speech. But the idea behind it is, is the same idea behind doing diversity and inclusion work. You know, it's about bringing people together and understanding that if we don't communicate, if we don't speak with one another, we're not going to progress as a society. And so it was the Oberlin Republican and Libertarian Club that brought me in. And I don't know how familiar you are with Oberlin, but it's a very, very liberal institution. And um, just because of who it was that brought me in, they had, I think there's 17 members in the whole club, but yet the entire (laughs) auditorium was full of people there to shout me down. I knew throughout the evening leading up to the event that, you know, tensions were starting to rise. But when the president of the organization started to get worried (laughs) about my safety, (laughs) 
<laughs> that's just like, oh my, this is something I've, I've never experienced before. Because usually I've been brought in by groups that are very welcoming. And they were, but I'd never had that tension or divide. And so I got on stage and I addressed it right straight out of the box. I said, listen, you know, as surprised as you all are to see me here. And they poke the bear. Let's not lie. They put my picture up all across campus on posters, which got ripped down about 95% of them, but under the the Ronald Reagan speaker series. (laughs) And, um, I said to the audience, as surprised as you all are to see me here, imagine my surprise when I got called by this organization. When, you know, at the time I considered myself probably a, you know, a bleeding heart liberal. Um, my husband's like, Kara, please, you're such a conservative. And honestly, I don't feel like I have a label. I'll be real about that. I feel a bit like a political alien. I'm more for the common sense. Um, group, if we can start that up again. <laughs> Good to have you on sanity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> can we be common sense? Because guess what? There are people on many sides that have good ideas. And just because you're not on that side doesn't mean you should not think it's a good idea too. And that is that is insanity to me. So it's shocking how people get so wrapped up in the idea of if this doesn't drive with what my hive believes I can't partake in it. And it's it's so detrimental, not just to people personally, but to society. So, I mean, that's a big part of the work that I do is about uniting people. And so that was why I chose to go to Oberlin and speak. Um, but there have been other instances where I will talk about the basis of my work, of the curriculum, is I say I want people to care. And that stands for having conscious empathy active listening, responsible reactions, and environmental awareness. And that conscious empathy goes both ways. You know, it's not to be confused with sympathy, which often people do. Sympathy is, oh, you know, when you feel sorry for someone. Empathy is when you can put yourself in their shoes. And conscious empathy is empathy on steroids, where you dive deeper. And it's not comfortable, okay? Because it's not comfortable trying to be someone else or understand where they're from if it's so completely foreign to you, but it's asking two main questions. You know, what is it like for them and how must that feel? What is it like to be somebody like me who was the only person of color in most of my classes throughout my entire, even college career, not just from like grade school, high school, but college. What is it like to be a white person who didn't grow up around people who weren't white and doesn't know necessarily the right things to say or words to use or questions to ask because they don't want to be accused of you know, microaggressions. We've got everybody so on edge right now and so scared to communicate that we're stagnant. And when you're stagnant, that's when things fester. And that's when you get mold and diseases and trauma. <laughs> and it's, it's a negative. So that's a big part of the work that I do. But in that line of thought, what I was thinking was, you know, I've had students say, well, I want to talk to other people, but what about the people who want to be the perpetual victim. And when I say victim, I don't mean people that have had trauma done to them. I mean, people who that's how they seek attention is by, you know, making a mountain out of a molehill. Twitter.com. Yeah. (laughs) You know, not denying that there aren't mountains, but you know, a lot of times it's, it's, it's people who take things very, very personally and it's something that they should be dealing with and they just may not have the skills to. So it's not a blame game, but it's about personal responsibility When you were speaking at Oberlin, when you took the stage to a somewhat hostile audience, what was the reaction to your work? Did you win them over? I did. I did. There was not one boo or one hiss. And what was really even more fascinating was that afterwards, people not only came up and thanked me for coming and for sharing the message that I did, they thanked the group for bringing me in. And some people even wanted to join. 
that organization because they had, they just didn't even know what they were about. They just heard what other people had said. They put a label on someone who's a libertarian or a Republican, and that's not who I am. But then they were like, oh, if this is what they stand for, then yeah, that's what I stand for too. I, I agree with that. I'm on board. And so it's, it's, this is so much about education, you know, and, and not being closed off. And that's all I want people to do. I mean, I'm not out there to have everybody singing Kumbaya and holding hands, but I am out there for getting people to come to a place of mutual respect and, and civil discourse. I think sometimes we can find common ground in unexpected places, but often this this line of work, this space is looked at, I think, from people in the political world as you think we can all get along, you think we can all hold hands and sing. And, and, and I think that that is inaccurate. The objective, at least the way that I see it, is if you can look at the humanity of someone that disagrees with you, perhaps that can be a starting place to find some kind of overlap or, or at least have respect for where someone else is coming from. I mean, there is a line, you know, you, you cannot condone Nazis for this, you know, for, right, right. For, but at I this, mean, you know, but yeah. most people that are reasonable and not extremists, we are in an environment right now, especially a news environment where the salaciousness of the extreme is what is the most attention grabbing and, and everything gets pulled out of context. And it's really hard to figure out what the right context is so how do you go about seeking out that kind of context? Because you don't check one specific box. You're not the perfect Fox News watcher or MSNBC watcher. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the story of my life, girlfriend, not falling into a box. And that's actually you know, a big part of why I, I started this work, because I have been you know, I used to say sometimes caught between two worlds. Now I realize it's a gift versus, you know, something that was put upon me. But I, I've for a long time have not fit the quote unquote stereotype uh, in, in many areas of my life. And that's been a challenge, certainly with work and entertainment. You know, I'm not the stereotypical black woman that they like to portray who's loud and talks about baby daddies and rolls my neck and that's not who I am. Um, I'm also not the cute little, you know, blonde girl like Amy Schumer. I'm also not like filthy and dirty. And, and so I've kind of had to tell people what to do with me and I defy the stereotypes and I defy labels and I want to encourage other people to do that. And that's really the message that I take. And I think my being authentic about it and sharing my experiences, you know, sharing that while it hasn't been an easy road, it's been a rewarding one. And it's certainly one that I feel brings people together more, more often than not. Because why do we have to fit into a box? Why do we need to be pigeonholed? You know, like you said, it's not about a label. I mean, I, I think I, without everything that's happening in the news right now, I said, you know, it's not about being a Democrat, Republican, or conservative, or liberal. It's, it's about being a decent human being. You know, and these labels, that's just surface stuff. That's surface stuff. You know, I was, I was in New York City for 9-11. That was a Tuesday. And I walked home from work that day and that the next that Thursday this of the same week, I found myself with many of my friends from a group called the Texas Exes, even though I didn't go to UT, but they were my core group in New York when I first got there. And um, we were all in line to volunteer. And it wasn't just us, it was thousands upon thousands of New Yorkers who wanted to help, who wanted to donate blood, who wanted to help search, who had tools and for two weeks, there was no age, there was no religion, there was no ethnicity or race, there was no gender. It was people there to help people. And 
I am of the belief that we can get there again and it shouldn't have to take a national tragedy or mass shooting or a natural disaster to bring us together like that. You know, I, my daughter's godparents are in Houston and they had to get rescued by canoe. I guarantee you, nobody said, who do you sleep with when they were helping them into, you know, who do you pray to? You know, who did you vote for? That wasn't the question when people were trying to save each other's lives. And I mean, that's at the heart of the work I do is getting people to have that consciousness on a more regular basis. What kind of tools have you seen that succeed that can foster that kind of humanity when we're not in crisis? I haven't seen a lot. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm working on. That's why I that's why I do this. I mean, I know I'm not the only person doing this, and I know there are other organizations and people who whose hearts are certainly in the right place. There's a gentleman by the name of Howard Ross, who is the first person I've met who does any kind of training along the lines of diversity and inclusion, who approaches it in a similar manner. You know, I, I think I've just been very disappointed by the fact that there are a lot of people out there who, I mean, this is, you can make a decent living doing this, but are you doing it because you really want to make a change or are you doing it because it's a good paycheck? And yet you're doing the same thing over and over again and not making a difference. Same with the corporations who bring these folks in, you know, they're checking their boxes off. Oh, we have this, you know, they're, you know, it's a CYA move for HR, but are you really, really making a difference? Are you, mm -hmm. I don't see that. Not that I don't believe they want to. I think there are some who may not, <laughs> they were very happy, but I think that that's what, that's what needs to change. That's what needs to shift. And I feel awesome to be, certainly an integral part of that shift happening. Because once I do the programming, what I see are people who have these epiphanies, people who have these breakthroughs, people who will say, you know, I never thought about it like that before. And I, I use humor, of course, because comedy is my background. And I believe com humor is an incredible tool. You know, there are three things that humor does. It heals. It's cathartic, right? It reveals it kind of peels back the layers of things, sometimes the ugly things that we don't want to see. And it seals, it connects us, it bonds us, and it's super powerful. And I don't think it should be dismissed. And I get it. You know, people think, oh, a stand-up comic, somebody who stands in front of a brick wall and talks about their private parts. Sure, that's like one aspect of it. But there's also another way that humor can be used to bring people together and to bring the defenses down. Because when you are talking about a topic as taboo sometimes as diversity and inclusion because of how it's been done for so long. People think they're either going to be victimized or vilified. You're going to have people coming to the table on the offense or the defense. I use the humor to kind of neutralize that space so that we can have the uncomfortable conversations without it being painful. And the good news is the discomfort is temporary. You know, it passes. Often the discomfort I've experienced that is temporary, it leads to so much growth and acceptance in a whole nother stratosphere that it's important. I, I I agree with you. I've been through some some trainings that one that really comes to mind. We there was a room full of people we'd never met. We we're going to be spending a year together on on a program, and the diversity and inclusion office had taped these signs around the room, and they said things like gender identity, national identity, sexual identity. And they would read these statements, I identify with this most in my home, I identify most with this at my workplace. And you were supposed to go stand under these signs. And then they walked around with microphones forcing people 
to speak about why they were standing under these signs. And meanwhile, I didn't know the names of anyone in the room. Most people were from around the world. So this was their right. first introduction to the United States. Oh my God, who did that? It had the complete opposite effect. It made everyone in the room uncomfortable and it forced you to put a label on yourself. And instead of looking at the complexity of a, a person, it reduced them to a printed out piece of paper on a wall. And it was so, I, I mean, I was so upset going through this process because I think that there can, that focusing on this can be a real gift and can help students connect and make friends with people that they wouldn't have necessarily made friends with prior. Same goes in the workplace, but I do think this is, <laughs> that was not a good way to go about it, in my opinion. That was a horrible way to go about it. That was, I, 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 I oh my gosh, the people who did that, I, would love to have a conversation with them. And that's, you know what? But your story isn't the only one. I, I can't tell you how many people I've heard share that, whether it was an experience like that or something at school or at a corporation where, and that's why people hate, like as soon as I even make fun of it when I go to a place, I'm like, how many of you are excited that you heard you're going to have a diversity and inclusion workshop? And like five people out of 50 will raise their hand. <laughs> I'm like, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I absolutely get it. Because I, I feel that way too. It's just been done so poorly. And while I am certain the intentions were well meant, right. the execution was poor. And so that's that's what you know my goal is with this work that I do. You wrote an op-ed in the Chicago Tribune a few years ago, and and in it you wrote about political correctness. You said, the real problem, however, isn't the wasted energy of the political correction patrollers or the hurt careers of comics. The danger of this outrage phenomenon is that in the process of policing every sensitive subject, we lose comedy itself, one of the only tools we have to grapple with our testiest issues. I mean, you know, that's true. It's it's one of the situations that if we are going to say, you can't say that, you can't say that, you can't, but I can say this, well, that's not going to work. That's not going to fly. And who, who says that you had the right to do that? Who says that you, who put you in charge? You know, who made you the boss of the world? You know, and that's a big proponent of free speech. So long as you're not inciting violence, and again, you know, this idea behind hate speech is also one that's very much up for debate because of, you know, what is the intention behind something? You know, I do believe that people have the right to say whatever they want. Now, there will be consequences. You may personally come under fire for some things. You may be dismissed if it's a policy in your workplace not to do that, but that's on you. And it's your choice to do that. When I refer to free speech, I'm mainly speaking of, you know, not disinviting people because they hold opposing views to you. Hearing that, I mean, especially when this is happening on college campuses, I mean, nothing makes me more concerned about our future than the idea that we're shutting off knowledge. And even if it's, even if nothing else, it, it confirms your beliefs, you know, you get even more strengthened in your convictions and good for you, but maybe you're going to be exposed to something different, to something new. That's something you haven't, and isn't that why you went to school? Isn't that why all of this money is being spent and loans are being taken out or scholarships being applied for you to, to grow as a person? And that is where I'm, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that we're hurting ourselves in that way. And I do think it's 
also alarming that, oh, you know, well, that's a conservative way of looking at something. No, it's not. It's a common sense way. It's a human way. It's a someone who is an educator. And in my role as an educator, I believe it's my duty to say, hey, listen, you guys have to hear other things. And I understand that people have trauma in their lives. I'm, I'm not going to deny that. But to have to label things with trigger warnings and and have people upset about things that you know, it was almost like what you said earlier, you get stronger through the things that are tough. And Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt mentioned this in their book. And they talked about cognitive behavior therapy, where when you actually face what you've had to deal with, that's when you get through it and you become stronger. I can't support that enough. And I, I try to explain that, especially to the young people who I talk to, that you know, hiding from something or avoiding it isn't what's going to help you get through it. In that vein, you have kind of a fascinating chapter in your career after Don Imus said, thinking about the Rutgers women's basketball team, he called them nappy-headed hoes. He went off the air and he came back on the air with a new team and you were part of that team. First day, first episode had John McCain on it, had a lot of people that were, you know, top level guests that he had booked. What was that experience like for you? Wow. I mean, the process of even just getting there was pretty dramatic. I mean, not going to lie. I, what's funny is I remember the day it blew up on the news that Don had made those disparaging remarks about the Rutgers women's basketball team. It was my uncle's funeral. So was, I will never forget that day. It was raining and gray. I was in Camden, New Jersey. And I remember seeing it and going, oh my God, I should have been there. If I had been there, this would not have blown up like it did. Because I saw it from two perspectives. First, as a comic, I get he was trying to be funny. He was an old white guy. I mean, the man's 118, trying to use modern lingo that he had no idea what it meant. Secondly, those weren't really even his original words. Like he was parroting his producer, Bernie McGurk, who was, you know, trying to be funny. He, he initially called them, those are, he said, them are some hardcore hoes. And Don, you know, jumping into the, the conversation and the fray with it. As a comic, like you're, you're trying to be funny, you're in the moment, you're trying to just like make something happen. And it wasn't funny for multiple reasons, but primarily because it brought innocent young women into a spotlight that they didn't ask for. And it wasn't a really kind thing to say. I mean, it was, as a black woman, you know, if somebody would say, call me a nabby-headed hoe, I'd be pissed off, you know? I'm like, how dare you? And so when I got the call three months later saying, hey, would you be interested in a radio and TV opportunity? As a comic, your first instinct is, yes, of course. Why would I not? And then the follow-up was, by the way, it's with Don Imus, who had become at that time one of the most reviled men in media. And I remember being really torn because I, you know, I wanted to hear his side of things. I wanted to hear what happened from his point of view and perspective. But I also saw that as an opportunity to be a voice that wasn't represented in the media. I mean, there were no black women who weren't a quote unquote stereotype on mainstream TV or, or radio. You know, this was post Oprah. She no longer had her regular daily show and this was pre her network. There was no Shonda Rhimes or... Viola Davis or Kerry Washington, not that, you know, it should just only be those four people that get counted in the spotlight, but there wasn't 
I didn't think there was rep- proper representation of who I wanted to see in the media representing black women. So I thought this is my chance. You know, this was my calling to be the beacon of light and truth that I thought I was going to be, that I went to school for. And so I waited heavily because my mother was very opposed to it. She just didn't want me to get hurt. Um, she was concerned about my physical safety. I mean, like I said, I was going to be seen probably by many as a sellout. Like, why are you joining forces with this evil, evil man when my true perspective was on undoing something for the greater good? trying to bring up other people. I mean, and yes, of course it was a career move. That's not without question. You know, it was, a, it was supposed to be a stepping stone into greater things. And my father, who's like me a little bit more, was like, if you don't do this, you're going to wonder what if. And to me, that's hell on earth. You know, wondering what if, if I had done this, what could have been? And I can't live like that. So I said, yes. And it was pretty fantastic for about the first year. It was clear from, I mean, the first six weeks, I was dealing with someone who had some psychological issues. I mean, he's, he's a very damaged person. Um, he's a, an addict who, you know, drugs and alcohol, who never sought treatment. So it's referred to as a dry drunk. He actually even referred to himself that way. And when you don't get sober, you still have those demons. And they came out on a regular basis. And it was really... It was stressful because you never knew who you were going to get at six o'clock in the morning. I lost my, um, I couldn't do comedy at night like I had been, which was a bit therapeutic, but it was also like my work because when you have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to be to work at six and do hair and makeup, you, you can't do it at all. It became a very, very intense situation and it was only made worse when he got comfortable being back on the air and then wanted me to say and do things that I wasn't okay with, um, do voices. He actually said to me, you know, I like you, Kira, but you're too nice and you don't make enough fun of black people. I was like, so that's why you brought me on, <laughs> to be the voice you couldn't be. And I was hurt because I saw it as this incredible opportunity, not just to help him get back into the good graces of America, but to, you know, have this dream job to be on the air and to be broadcasting and to do what I love, be funny, talk news of the day, talk politics. Janice Dean, who is a anchor on Fox News, she's a chief meteorologist. She was on The View, I think back in March of 2019. And she gave her account of working with him. And everything that she said, everything that she said was so true. She called Roger Ailes to get out of there because she couldn't take it. But she had an escape plan. <laughs> I did not. To Roger Ailes. Right, right. <laughs> I know, right? The irony. <laughs> Talk about irony. Yeah. I've been, you know, I lecture every year at Stanford Graduate Business School for a course on reputation management. And I tell the story of how I went in to help him save his reputation, but ultimately had to save mine, I get asked, you know, would you do it again? Knowing what you know now, would you do it again? And the answer is I would. Would I do things differently? Of course. I certainly wouldn't take it as personally as I did. But I was young and I didn't know any better. But through that came growth and strength and the programming that I do. Because I vowed after that experience, never again would I be put in a position to use my comedy or humor for anything other than something positive and good. That is the beauty of getting through something difficult and uncomfortable and making something beautiful out of it. Before we close, I I do want to ask you about a documentary that you were a part of called Can We Take a Joke? There was an advanced screening at the museum that was sponsored by groups that you don't normally see working together. So the ACLU, uh, the Charles Koch Institute, FIRE, which is the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and 
a couple hundred people attended it. It featured a range of comedians. It did get mixed reviews, maybe in part because it came out in the summer of 2016. Um, (laughs) And we all know what was going on in the summer of 2016 (laughs) in the United States and politics. But what was it like being in that documentary and what was your hope for it? Well, what's funny is it was just supposed to be a short. You know, it started as a short. Um, Greg Lukianoff, who is the president and CEO of FIRE, had this idea after a conversation with a friend of his who was a comedian who basically said, I don't even want to perform on college campuses anymore because they're so hypersensitive. And Greg was like, what? And that was the seed that got planted. And Greg hooked up with uh, Courtney and Ted Balaker, who are the producers and directors of the film. I knew them through their brother, who I did comedy with. And they ultimately actually became godparents to my <laughs> daughter. Yeah, we were, I mean, we just hit it off that well. And they asked me to, you know, just you know, share a few words about what was going on with comedy and, and, and this idea of... And I, I almost hate the term political correctness or overcorrection of political correctness, because it's more about, you know, I think political correctness has been confused with being, having, having manners, having, having coof, you know, there are just some things you don't say. Why does that have to be considered politically correct to, to be kind? But I I was thrilled when it became a feature film, like documentary, a full-on documentary. And the work that they did was just so good. I mean, it was so right on. It hit the nail on the head. And, you know, I didn't even know the full Justine Sacco story, until I'd seen that. And that was the woman who wrote the tweet and joking, um, I'm going to Africa. Uh, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. That was the tweet that like literally blew up around the world before she even landed on her in South Africa from London. And she'd lost her job. She'd lost friends. And, you know, come to find out the true story behind it was she was, she was being sarcastic. She was talking about this bubble that we live in, people thinking that they can't be affected by something because of who they are. But it, because it was a joke that not everybody got or saw, even though it was only shared amongst her 100 and something friends, it went worldwide and, and caused her immense trauma. You know, comedy is subjective, which is why, to me, it's a farce that there's even such a thing as comedy contests. But that's the beauty of it as well, that it's subjective. And what disturbs me is that people right now are so busy hearing, just listening to the words, but not the intent or the the perspective of the person telling it that they're missing the humor. I mean, they're, and if we lose our sensitive humor, we're in serious trouble. And that's the basis of that movie was that comics are the truth tellers. Comics are the ones who will actually put it out there when other people are thinking it, but can't say it. Comedians are the ones who, and this isn't, New. I mean, this goes back to, to Shakespeare. You know, he was one of the very few people who could criticize the king via comedy and not be beheaded for treason. And so that's why comedy needs to be valued and respected. And people should, you know, give it a little time. I mean, not everything's going to be your style. And that's fine. And that's your prerogative. And that's the beauty of it. You don't have to think everything's funny. But just because you don't get it doesn't mean other sh- people shouldn't hear it. I believe wholeheartedly, I say it consistently, all is fair in love and comedy. Anything can be made funny, especially the dark stuff. I mean, think about how many sitcoms, well, there aren't that many anymore, but had, had funeral episodes, right? And they were some of the funniest. Is death funny? Of course not. It's horrific. It's painful. It's traumatic. But when you can find the humor in it, then you heal from it. And that's, again, it goes back to what comedy does. It heals, reveals, and it seals.
if you can do it on the spot, what is a favorite routine or favorite favorite joke that you that you enjoy telling? Oh God. Well, this is kind of a new joke. I haven't even fully developed it. It's just, I mean, I, I don't tell joke jokes as much as I tell stories. And not long ago, um, my family and I, we had a, I had a conference in Orlando and we stayed a couple extra days and we're standing in line and I'm all for adults being children again. Like, you know, you can't let go of that completely, but there's, you have an opportunity to stand in line to meet the characters and you get a picture with them and crazily enough you can have an autograph book and they'll sign their autograph and you're which is like it's not even it's obviously it's, it's a fictional character there's human inside the costume it's not like you're like really with brad pitt okay i grew up in florida i still have my autograph book moved and i found it in a box <laughs> but it's not you know it's donald effing duck like you know what i mean it's not <laughs> When you're three, it is. Maybe when, when you're, you're 30, 30, not so much. That, that, and that was what happened. There was a woman there in her 30s who looked to have all of her mental faculties, okay? She was just there having a good time. She just loved Disney. Like, that was her thing. It's like the people who get married there. I'm like, that boggles my mind. But okay, more power to you. But she's there, and she's taking, like, five, six different poses with these, this character. It, she was taking so long that... I mean, people were rolling their eyes. This, this, this isn't funny, but this poor kid in a wheelchair with like, you know, the breathing, all the apparatus left the line. I'm like, even the Make-A-Wish kid is like, I don't have time for this. You know, I got to see the rest of the park before my time's up. And this lady, it's... Disney brings out the best and the worst in people. <laughs> Maybe that's the, uh, the, the breeding ground for the not a natural disaster. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it could be. <laughs> and they say it's the happiest place on earth. I can't tell you how many people I saw crying and fighting <laughs> because they were tired, they were hot, they were miserable. My roommate from my freshman year of college sent me a video that went viral about yes, this Disney. I saw that. Having a vicious, I mean, the grandmother was in a motorized vehicle. She had to get, she got involved in this like physical brawl. That, yes. I didn't see the, was it the whole family? It was like the same family or were they, it's two different families fighting? I think that they were all from the same party. I don't know if they're related. Oh my God. Wrong. That makes it even worse. I mean, that display period. I, I always saw a clip of it and I was like, like I, I had to turn it off. It was just so disgusting to me. And, and that's another thing. Like, what is going on in the world? Like, why are people so vitriolic? Why are we so angry? What is missing right now? And, and it's, you know, so it's, now it's going from not just online where people are fighting with one another. I mean, who wins a fight on Facebook or Twitter? No one. It's just people espousing their beliefs, getting emotionally upset getting, you know, raising things in fever pitch. I mean, I, I once saw, you know how BuzzFeed will have those little food videos where people, um, you know, they, they fast time it and they make a really awesome, delicious meal that makes you salivate. And one was on skillet macaroni and cheese. And it was lovely. And at the very end, they put breadcrumbs on it. Oh my God. The debate about program breadcrumb versus anti-breadcrumb. Y'all, it led to it led to people talking about each other's mamas. It led to people talking about Trump. Like, I'm like, it's macaroni and frap and cheese. Like, can we get a grip? But and that's another big part of this this challenge um, is you know, getting people to let go of whatever that is, that anger, that need to be right. 
it's old school, but I pull up an example uh, sometimes of that dress that that woman from England posted. Uh, you know, it was and it was black and blue. But the friend who saw it was like, "Why would you wear a white dress to your daughter's wedding?" And she's like, "What are you talking about?" And so, you know, this dress went around the internet for years. You know, how do you see? Do you remember how you saw it? Golden. Was it golden white? Yeah. Golden so I think white. I saw it as green. You saw it as golden white. And it was actually a blue and black dress. And, you know, I'll, I'll pull it up and I'll show both dresses, how people saw them together. And I pull the audience. And what's interesting, and then I say, why, why was this such a big deal? Like, why do people get into fights about this? And every now and then someone will like shout it out right away. And it's because everybody, whoever saw it, thought they were right. Mm-hmm. And that was exactly it. Because you can't, how can you tell me? I'm looking at it with my own two eyes. What do you mean? This is something completely different from what I see. But I think that's such a perfect metaphor for what is happening right now in this country. You know, some people see people kneeling on the sidelines of a football game as a peaceful protest. Some people see it as disrespecting our servicemen and women. And it has to do with your perspective and where you're coming from. And we, we know that there is a scientific reason why people saw the dress differently. It has to do with how your eyes take in light. But with regard to so many things that are happening in the news now, people are going to see it differently because of where they come from and those, their perspectives. So we have to understand that maybe there isn't a right or a wrong, but there's another way to see it. And to just have the open lines of communication to be able to talk about it, why someone might see it differently is all I'm just trying to get to, mm. you know, and it's okay to agree to disagree, but at least honor the other person's perspective. This righteous in- indignation is really dangerous. And that dress analogy is so perfect. I think that, uh, that, that really summarizes a lot of this. Um, well, our final question for every guest on Sanity is what are you most optimistic about right now? This is our effort to end on a high note. <laughs> oh, I'm all about high notes. And I do have true optimism that we can come together. I really do because I see it in the work that I do. I see it in the faces of people and I hear it in their responses to me. And most people want to be connected. Most people want to get along. It's just sometimes they need permission and sometimes they need instruction. You know, we think everything's supposed to be natural. It's supposed to be easy. And we've kind of fallen into line of things being easy or instant. And sometimes they aren't. Sometimes things take a little work. It takes a little prodding. It takes maturity. It takes patience. It takes forgiveness. But I don't think that we can't get there. You know, it's just how do you learn to incorporate all of those things into your relationships with people that you work with, with people that you are in school with, with your family? And, you know, making sure that people feel heard is a big part of it. You know, people are like, well, how do I have a conversation with somebody who I don't agree with, who doesn't like believe what I say? Well, make sure that they feel heard. And hopefully they will then give you the mutual respect of the same thing because they feel like they've been able to have their say and get it off their chest. Even if you don't like what they're saying, but just listen, you know, that's the big, that's where the active listening comes in, you know, cause oftentimes it's not, you know, it's like the expression, it's not what you say, but how you say it. Well, sometimes it's not what you hear, but how you interpret it. Mm-hmm. So often my, uh, you know, I'm married, I've been married for almost eight years and, um, my husband will get into a fight and we're saying the same exact thing, but we're saying it differently. And then we're like, why are we fighting about that? And I think that happens more often than not. So it's about taking that time to step back and really hear what someone else is saying. And if you don't know, if you're not sure, asking, 
but doing so not in a way that puts him on the defense um, or the offense rather, but asking in a way that but gives them a chance to explain themselves so that they feel heard and so that you have a better understanding of what's being said. But I, I'm thoroughly optimistic. You know, I, I travel the country on a regular basis and I see people who are mostly good people who just want to be loved, respected, and, and feel worthy. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to to close. And I think that we, we all need a little optimism uh, in, in our world today. So Kareth Foster, thank you so much for joining this episode. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Audrey.